This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 363rd episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new partial skull of a tyrannosaur known as the Beautiful Nightmare, mm-hmm. which Sabrina wanted me to say might be a nanotyrannus. And I said, I'm not going to say that, but now I guess then I you am just saying said it. it. That's interesting. <laughs> I don't think it might be a nanotyrannus because there isn't a nanotyrannus, most likely, but... We'll get into that later. Yeah. <laughs> we also have the first day of Society of Vertebrate Paleontology coverage, which includes a lot of stuff all over the place. <laughs> Keep it nice and vague. <laughs> well, I was, was going to say we're going to cover three different sessions. So we've got macroecology, we've got some diversity stuff, and some education-related stuff. Yep. All dinosaur-related. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Streptospondylus. Which has a very interesting history. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week we'd like to thank Kessler, Eric, Deplato Kate, Stego Sophie, Jared Copeland, Anne, the Tolbert family, Ray, Painted Horse, and Danny Hermes. Awesome. Thank you so much for supporting us and being part of our community. Uh, and as you know, since you're part of our community, you will get access to that bonus content that we promised for SVP, Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, this year, which will include information about non-dinosaur papers and topics. It's not out yet because we're still going through a whole bunch of the talks. There's so much good stuff to go through. But if you want to access that and join our growing community, then go to our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news. And our SVP coverage, we're going to kick it off with the macroecology and macroevolution section, as they called it this year, the networking session, which was a little bit confusing because it makes it sound like you're just going to chat to people, but really it was all presentations. It's okay. We figured it out. Yeah. This first talk that we're allowed to talk about is by Michael DeEmick and others, and it's about the evolution of body mass in sauropods. Ooh. At first, if you recognize his name, it could be because he's been on our show before. We interviewed him back in episode 225. Yeah, he's very much a sauropod guy and other sorts of, I would say, generally focusing on... The big dinosaurs? Yeah. Right. Tell me about the sauropods. (laughs) So the idea basically was to figure out throughout all of the Mesozoic what went on with sauropod body size. So in the beginning, the first theories basically was like Cope's rule of animals get bigger, but that wasn't even just linked to sauropods. It was just like all animals just get bigger as they evolve. And that was sort of the theory. And we know that very early dinosaurs and dinosaur morphs were relatively small because it was not too long after the first tetrapods got out of the oceans. So they had a lot of growing to do. But Over the whole span of the Mesozoic, that 150 million year plus time period, what exactly was going on with sauropods? Did they get bigger? Did they have periods of shrinking? Was it just one group that got bigger? What was going on? Turns out a lot of things were going on. Yeah, I guess. So (laughs) there were 276 species of sauropods that Damick considered valid, I suppose. And he said that over time, There have been other studies on this. They started out with just looking at 14 taxa, then 36, then 73, then 122. 
and then 156. It grew over time, just like Cope's rule. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's just the number that are being studied. <laughs> but De Emic added some more. And so he's up to 191 taxa in the study. This is based on humerus and femur circumference. So basically how robust those limbs are. And based on how robust the limbs are, you can estimate the mass of the animal and the mass of the animal is usually what we use when we're talking about how big in air quotes something is because you could be talking about length you could be talking about height you could be talking about width but weight is i think the best way to sort of quantify what's the biggest so with these 191 species that means that's 70 percent of the known diversity of sauropods 191 out of 276 which is pretty excellent that's a very good sample size obviously mm-hmm and part of the reason he was able to include so many is basically he was assuming the circumference from the widths of the bones, which means you don't have to physically go to every bone and wrap a tape measure around it and measure the circumference. You can look at a picture of it, see what the width is at a specific spot, which it tends to be very round, and then you can estimate what its overall circumference is, and then use that for the mass. And with a lot of testing, he found that really you only get a little bit of variability, just a couple percentage points in variability when you're measuring the circumference directly versus looking at the width of it and inferring it. So it's pretty reliable. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of variability anyway in these bones, you know, individual variation and stuff like that. So it probably doesn't make a lot of difference. So in the end, what he found is that the average sauropod of all 191 of these species was about 16,000 kilograms or about 16 tons, Mm -hmm. which is pretty heavy, obviously, but certainly not... Not the heaviest estimates we've heard of. No, that's actually not that much heavier than the heaviest land animals today because the heaviest African bush elephants are roughly 10 tons. So this is still in that same order of magnitude of weight but it is definitely heavier. It's not heavier, though, than the heaviest ever proboscideans, which is the elephant family. If you've played any of those park builder games, you know that there are other elephant-looking things that used to be bigger (laughs) in the distant past. So the average of 16,000 is actually 2,000 kilograms lighter than the heaviest hadrosaurs as well. It's weird to think of hadrosaurs being heavier than sauropods. Yeah, and that the heaviest hadrosaur was heavier than most sauropods is really interesting, too. But among those 191 species, there were 39 sauropods that are heavier than the heaviest terrestrial mammals, meaning those proboscideans, and 71 that are heavier than the heaviest hadrosaurs. Those are the ones we think of most when we're thinking of sauropods. Definitely, yeah. So that includes brontosaurus, Brachiosaurus, Giraffotitan, Diplodocus, all Dreadnotus. of those. Yeah, Dreadnoughtus, absolutely. Patagotitan. All those Titanosaurs. Well, not all the Titanosaurs. Nah. But all the really popular Titanosaurs, probably. <laughs> Maybe not Saltosaurus. Yeah. So sauropods did evolve larger body mass multiple times. In this data set, they evolved body mass larger than hadrosaurs at least five times. Those were all in the early Jurassic to early Cretaceous. And they also independently evolved larger body mass than the largest terrestrial mammals at least seven times, which isn't too surprising since the largest terrestrial mammals are a little bit smaller than the largest hadrosaurs. Three of those times were in Titanosauria, but clearly that is not most of them. So Titanosaurs are definitely not always the largest group. Despite their name. Yeah, because there were several groups that shrank over time as well. And some of those are in Titanosauria. And he did say the ones that shrank didn't re-evolve to get bigger again. Yeah. Those lineages, which is interesting. It is very interesting. So I think the summary of the size change was basically that they started increasing in size from the beginning because they started out as these little tiny early dinosaurs. And they basically reached their maximum size at sort of a roughly steady rate, the maximum size increased until about the Morrison formation about 155 million years ago, where we have all those big name dinosaurs like Brachiosaurus and Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus. And then the maximum basically stayed around that height. 
So they didn't really get that much bigger throughout, or really any bigger. The maximum was roughly at that point throughout the rest of the Mesozoic. The next almost 100 million years, they didn't manage to get much bigger. But there's a lot of variability. So depending on which lineage you're in, some of them were shrinking, and some of the ones that hadn't gotten so big got bigger later. So I said at the beginning, they were all doing different things. They were, all the different groups were. It was really interesting. But again, titanosaurs, even though the name implies they were the biggest and baddest, weren't really that much bigger than the stuff in the Morrison Formation. Is all They reached that maximum size pretty early, and it's just sort of that messy spider web of evolution of different groups doing different stuff. I think there were some small titanosaurs, too. There definitely were, yeah, like saltosaurus. Figure we kick it off with some sauropods. Get Sabrina excited. Good way to start. <laughs> so the next one that we saw was Nick Freimuller, and speaking on behalf of a whole bunch of co-authors as well. And what they were looking at was, basically, if we could take the data that we have about these ancient ecosystems, these late Mesozoic specifically, they're looking at Hell Creek, and if we could figure out what the ecosystem was like, meaning specifically like the mean annual temperature and how much rainfall they're getting, and determine what the suitable habitable area was of these animals, or SHA, and then try to extrapolate how much of the land at that time and possibly right after the mass extinction would have been habitable space for these different dinosaur taxa. And there was a lot of really cool math that they ended up doing and a lot of interesting data that basically you end up plotting these pretty pictures of the Hell Creek formation and the known areas, what the temperature and rainfall was like. And that's based on this crazy model that they had, which basically had the last million years of the Cretaceous through the first million years of the Paleogene broken down into less than one degree latitude by one degree longitude squares. <laughs> for like, I don't know, very brief periods of time. And then they downscaled that to 20 by 20 kilometer areas to get these maps, which is really cool to see that they're, we're getting to a point where we can sort of recreate these ancient areas in terms of what kind of rainfall and what kind of temperature they had. Mm -hmm. Super amazing. But unfortunately, the fossil record is so fragmentary that you end up finding most of the fossils in sort of similar habitable area categories. Right. The things that were most likely to fossilize because of these conditions. Yeah. So when you try to extrapolate it out at all, it's basically like, well, we found all of them in this sort of habitation environment. And so anything other than that, we don't know if it was suitable. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of how we don't really know about dinosaurs that lived in the mountains. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot like that because you tend to find these things where, that get fossilized where there is a bunch of rainfall. You don't get it as much where it's dry and you don't get it that much depending on what kind of sediment there is because it has to get buried in something. So I think what you end up with is you end up with a suitable habitable area for fossilization more so than suitable habitable area for where the dinosaur wanted to live. Which is still really great that we can know that. Yeah. But then it's like, yeah, just take this with a grain of salt because it's not everything. Yeah, and during the talk, they basically were comparing a bunch of different models, so using different factors to see which animals would have survived in different situations. The key factors that they had been using in previous models, for example, were the mass of the animal, whether it was aquatic or terrestrial, and then the diet of the animal, so if it was eating plants or insects or other animals. Or fish. Yeah, exactly. So when you combine those features, you can get a pretty good estimate of what would have survived the KPG boundary. And then actually, if you add in the suitable habitab habitable area, you end up with a worse model, which can happen if you're adding in factors that are just sort of random noise. They can screw up your model. And that's what they got with this. No matter how they tried to tweak the suitable habitable area, they ended up getting worse models than if they just stuck with the mass what kind of land it lived on, and what it ate. But those alone still give us a pretty good set of information, and it's possible that if we expand out and find more areas outside of the Hell Creek, for example, we might be able to get a better feel for what the suitable habitable area was for some of these animals, and maybe it will become useful in the future. But there was one last funny aside about that, which was 
They wanted to look at all this diversity that was going on in basically the Hell Creek slash Lance Formation from the late Cretaceous and then the Fort Union slash Frenchman from the early Paleogene and then compare, you know, the different animals and stuff. And so it's like, okay, how are we going to find all the animals that were there, all the dinosaurs especially? And they looked at the Paleobio database and they were like, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> they said something like, you'd be better off just like randomly simulating what your best guess is from the formation than using the data from that. Because it's only the published papers and that focuses really hard onto newly found taxa. Mm -hmm. It doesn't give you a representative result at all. So they had to really tediously go through for years all of these different 5,000 plus occurrences and then vet them and ended up with 4,000. And of those, about three quarters were from the Cretaceous and about a quarter were from the Paleogene. Mm -hmm. And then they could use that data to start modeling. So it's just another level of bias. There's the preservation bias in terms of what fossils we find. And then there's the, I guess, publication, publication. bias. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then there's on top of that, you need to go through and vet the data to make sure that it's all valid and you don't have duplicates and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And even after all that work, the SHA, unfortunately, didn't help with the modeling. But it was really cool to see. Mm -hmm. The next talk was by Lucy Roberts. And again, a whole series of co-authors they were speaking on behalf of. And this one at first seemed like it was going to be a mammal paper because they started out talking about like mammals are great. They've got these really interesting vertebrae. They're usually considered to have the most regionalized and most heterogeneous vertebrae of the animal groups. And basically what that means is like our cervical vertebrae are pretty different than our dorsal vertebrae. And so that gives you the regionalization and then the heterogeneous meaning that within these different regions or between them, there's just a lot of variability in the vertebrae themselves. So it's pretty interesting. That's a, that's a nice way to start. But they decided to test that hypothesis using archosaurs, meaning the group that includes dinosaurs, modern birds, crocodilians, a whole bunch of other stuff that went extinct, and comparing their axial skeleton diversity, or in other words, the differences between their vertebrae, to mammals. So what they found is that vertebrae vary from one to six regions. So you've got cervical, which are the neck vertebrae. You've got dorsal, which are the back vertebrae. Lumbar, which are, or lumbar in our backs, you know, that part that sort of sticks forward a little bit in the back. There's the sacral vertebrae that go between the hips. And then there's caudal vertebrae, which we don't really have, but maybe that one tailbone that we have might count as a caudal vertebra. I don't know. And then because these can be sort of subdivided in some cases, sometimes there's an additional group within one of those. So that's how you end up with six regions. Interestingly, they started with living animals and they went to crocodilians and found four groups of vertebrae right off the bat. So obviously right off the start, archosaurs aren't really that different than mammals. because <laughs> They've already got four groups of vertebrae. And that's across all crocodilians and all the crocodilians sort of have them in the same general pattern as well. One interesting thing to point out is in order to do these studies, they scanned all the vertebrae either using a CT scanner or using structured light to get a nice 3D model of it and then let a computer decide where those differences are. Because if you, with your human bias, look at a skeleton and say like, okay, this is the neck this is the back and this is the tail. Within the back, are there two different areas or is there just one? Within the neck, is there two or just one? And within the tail, is there two or just one? You're sort of starting with three and then you're trying to figure out, well, can I subdivide one of them? But if you start with the whole skeleton, all the vertebrae at once, and you don't bias yourself by saying like, oh, well, the neck has to transition into the back. Sometimes you'll see that the neck and the back are the same. It's like all the same type of vertebrae. There isn't really any significant difference between them or the tail in the back or maybe even all of them. So it's really interesting when you do it this way, you end up with sometimes less groups and sometimes more groups just depending on your bias as a researcher. So by using all the vertebrae at once, they sort of eliminated a lot of that bias. I thought the funniest one was amphibians where they found they have either two or three regions but that didn't include frogs because frogs have so few vertebrae, they couldn't even run it. <laughs> yeah. They couldn't even test the comparison. And many other groups have four, like most mammals. Most have three. And so three is considered the most likely common ancestral state for archosaurs and mammals. 
which isn't really that few. You know, that's like a fair amount of variability. And mammals don't look especially heterogeneous. That goes against what they said at the beginning of the talk. Yes. Yes, it does. So basically, you could see this or phrase this as dinosaurs and archosaurs have vertebrae that are about as interesting and unique as mammals do, which I always find fun. And then I'm like, uh, it seems like I'm rooting for the wrong team <laughs> when I think it's cool that dinosaurs are as unique or more unique than mammals. But one reason that they might have these consistent vertebral regions is because they have that hepatic pump. We've talked about how the gastralia can be used to sort of squeeze the lungs and breathe out. And then when they expand, they breathe in. And that might have sort of limited these changes to their vertebrae, might have left them with that three groups for a while, or dropped to two in some cases with birds. Just in case you're curious, most dinosaurs had three, with the exception of stegosaurs that increased to four. I'm not sure if they tested ankylosaurs, by the way. I feel like they might have also had four. Weirdos. Just because I want ankylosaurs to be special. <laughs> are they special if the stegosaurs are also doing it? Yeah. Mm. So the moral of the story is dinosaurs have some pretty cool back vertebrae. I don't know if that's a moral, but a takeaway. <laughs> yeah. Or not just back. The whole skeleton vertebrae. Takeaway from this paper and this podcast. Dinosaurs are cool. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, there was a paper by Tabil Sirane and, of course, co-authors. And they were looking at the Triassic-Jurassic boundary also known as the End Triassic Extinction Event, or ETE, and whether or not that affected the dinosaur sizes, specifically in the Elliott Formation in South Africa. The reason they picked that one, partly because that's where they live, but also <laughs> because the Elliott Formation is one of the only formations that has a really good record right before and right after the End Triassic Extinction, mm. because the upper Elliott Formation is from the very earliest part of the Jurassic, and the lower Elliott Formation is from the very end of the Triassic. So it's a good way to compare. It is, and there's a lot of dinosaurs there, which is very handy. So what they were specifically looking at is an existing theory that sauropodomorph dinosaurs in that formation shrank right after the end Triassic extinction, which is not a hypothesis that I was familiar with, because... I always thought the hypothesis was everything gets bigger, but I guess people have moved on from that simplistic notion in the last 150 years. Well, if you think about the KPG, it was the, I think, the smaller animals that did well. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. I think what people were presuming was this thing that they called the lily pad effect, which is that the smaller animals can survive through a mass extinction, whereas larger animals might not. And what they ended up finding by looking at the data of the animal sizes right before and after the extinction event is that sauropodomorphs weren't really affected size-wise. And in fact, if anything, they were a little bit larger in the upper Elliott formation than the lower Elliott formation, meaning they, they might have gotten a little bit bigger after the end Triassic extinction. And that might be due to things like Ladumahati, which is just huge. And that one's at the early Jurassic, not at the end of the Triassic. But in general, there wasn't really enough data to say whether or not they were getting bigger or if they were staying the same, but they could reject the hypothesis at least that they shrank. At least those particular sauropodomorphs. Yep. Well, it's the whole collection in the fauna that we have so far. Yeah, so those, those that we have found. This is still very long before that Morrison formation where they stopped growing. <laughs> and then the last paper we have from the macroecology and macroevolution for this news break <laughs> is about strontium. And this one was presented by Thomas Cullen and also with some co-authors involved in the research. What they were looking at is using isotopes to try to determine where dinosaurs lived and how much they moved about. So previously, we've talked about oxygen and carbon isotopes, usually oxygen 18 and carbon 13. And if you plot them together, you can compare the niches of animals because it'll give you information about freshwater versus saltwater and what kind of diet they had, like what kind of plants they were eating potentially, or if they were eating plants. But with strontium, it's really interesting. It's distributed through the rock 
And the strontium values around a formation vary, even like today. You know, there's different strontium depending on where you are. And the ratio of strontium 87 to 86 will vary just sort of by random chance from our perspective with the ground. And if you're eating a plant in that area, the plant has roots that go down into the rock and they're going to absorb that ratio of strontium. So if you're a hadrosaur, for example, and you're eating leaves in one area and it's got more strontium 87 and then you walk somewhere else and eat the leaves over there, you're going to have a varied amount of strontium in your body. Whereas an animal that just stays in the same spot the whole time is going to have a more consistent isotope ratio. So if you're, you need multiple individuals to do this analysis, you can't just look at one, obviously. So previously, we've seen that hadrosaurs varied more than theropods and crocodiles in their oxygen and carbon ratios, and that meant that they were likely moving about 100 kilometers when they were moving around. What a migrating, huh? Yes. Oh, sorry, that also includes strontium, not just oxygen and carbon. But what they wanted to do is expand the strontium analysis to ceratopsids and ankylosaurs. Yeah, what were they doing? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. They looked at some microfossil bone beds from wetlands and river channels, in particular the quote-unquote rainy day site in southern Alberta. And when you plot out the data of the strontium isotopes, what you find is that hadrosaurs are distinct from the other dinosaurs, whereas ankylosaurs and ceratopsids overlap a lot probably indicating that ceratopsids and ankylosaurs probably lived in similar places and ate similar foods. Potentially, though, there could be a feeding height stratification because even if you're eating a plant in the same area, if one of them is a bigger tree and its, and its food is up higher and the other one has, is a smaller shrub, their roots are still going down into the same rock, so they're still getting the same strontium isotopes. But they still could be eating different plants physically in that spot. So it seems like hadrosaurs are pretty special, potentially, in their wider range of territory. We're learning all kinds of things about hadrosaurs. There's the wider range of territory. They're often bigger than sauropods. What's going on? <laughs> They're a lot cooler than people give them credit for. Yeah. They got more going on than just those duckbills. Oh, the duckbills are pretty cool. Yeah. Especially with like 500 teeth inside. That reminds me, somebody posted on Twitter after SVP officially ended, it's paleo art of a Gryposaurus with a, this is a speculative puffin-esque Ramphotheca or beak. Yeah, it looks really cool. It's all like orange and yellow. Mm -hmm. And it also hangs over the mouth, almost like it's got a beard or something. I think it looks like it's wearing a mask almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I would love to see just what those coverings looked like on all the things with beaks. Mm -hmm. so we know a lot of these dinosaurs had beaks. How beaky were those beaks? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. 
Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Our next section of SVP, it's about the education and outreach, which these are always really fun talks and seeing people's creativity and how to incorporate dinosaurs and not always dinosaurs, but obviously our focus is dinosaurs. Yeah. Into a bunch of different ways to reach out to people. But I think most of the education and outreach was about dinosaurs because that's usually the thing people want to learn about the most. I think it was a mix this year. So it was interesting, too, because there were a lot of overlapping these themes that came out with a lot of posters and talks kind of worked really well together. Uh, the first one I want to mention is Annalisa Berta gave a talk about it was called Rebel Scholars, Explorers, Women, Invertebrate Paleontology. And if her name sounds familiar, it's because we interviewed her in episode 247 actually about this topic because she had a book about it and that came out last year. So this is expanding on that. Basically, they have this database of 1,219 women in STEM and paleontology. And they found that women in vertebrate paleontology there's been a 70% increase in women in the field since 1940, which coincided with the establishment of SVP. Very interesting. And actually, since the establishment of SVP, they saw more women specifically in North America and the U.S. getting into vertebrate paleontology, which makes sense. Yeah, I was thinking it's only been a 70% increase, but that's globally. And we've talked before, I think we talked to her specifically about how in China and the USSR, there were a lot of women in paleontology, but not so much in Western Europe and North America. Yeah, there's, she was saying in this talk that, yeah, that the early 20th century was more North America, but also Soviet Union, like I said, then China and Japan. And then in the 21st century, now we're seeing more from South America and Oceania. And then before that, the earliest women vertebrate paleontologists were from Europe, actually mostly England. That makes sense. We hear about and talk about Marianning all the time. Yeah, and Gideon Mantell's wife. Mary. Was, yeah. Mary Mantell, yeah. I forget her name because she didn't get any credit. Mm, she's getting a little more credit. Yeah, so the earliest women in vertebrate paleontology studied fish and reptiles. I guess about 10% were in, into dinosaurs. Then it became more about mammals. and Many of them were looking at primates. And then also women started off more as collectors and artists, and then... In the 1940s, it became more about research and bibliographies, and then outreach educators started in the 1970s. So as of 2016, women were 28% of the STEM workforce. Less than 10% were minorities. So there's a lot of challenges. You know, there's the motherhood and family issues. And they sought some advice from women in paleontology. And I think this applies to probably most industries, actually. You know, seek good mentors and collaborators, have self-confidence in yourself, focus, have resilience. And as for next steps, they're saying well, we need to collect and publish more data on gender representation, continue to incorporate diversity, inclusion, respectful environments, have these effective mentorship opportunities, encourage and invite women, especially from minority groups as speakers, recommend more women as reviewers for manuscript provide training on ethical leadership and support better recognition of women and underrepresented minorities for awards and share the spotlight. So lots of good tips and next steps there and interesting data. And there were a couple of posters that also touched on these similar topics. So the first one was Angelica Therese's had a poster called Illuminating Science Women Paleontologists and Illustrators. And this is an exhibition that was developed in 2019. They launched in February of 2020 in La Rioja, Spain. And they focused on women from the Industrial Revolution to the present. So you've got Mary Anning, but also other names, uh, Elizabeth Philpott, Charlotte Merchinson, Gertrude and Alice Woodward, Dolores Soria. And they included these 
virtual guided tours and online conferences, and they've reached almost 10,000 people so far. And then there was one more poster by Thaisa Rodriguez and others. And we interviewed Thaisa back in episode 256 because she has done some really cool outreach work with dinosaurs. And this one was about a demographic profile of Brazilian vertebrate paleontologists. And so they started this project this year, 2021, all regions of Brazil. The project's called a Gender Profile in Brazilian Paleontology, and they had online surveys and public data. They got something like 191 responses from people ages 20 to 71. And uh, I guess not too surprisingly, they found more men in vertebrate paleontology, but more women in other areas like micropaleontology. And then they also found women and people of color underrepresented in Brazilian vertebrate paleontology. So, yeah, you've got all these different projects kind of focused on women in vertebrate paleontology from slightly different angles. Yeah, and whenever there's an intersection with other minorities, then it really drops the number of people you see, unfortunately. Yeah, but it looks like more people are kind of shining a light on this and figuring out, okay, how can we address this? So it's good to see. So the next couple I wanted to highlight were about kind of interacting with dinosaur fossil, well, not just fossils, dinosaur things. <laughs> so this was a poster by Brent Breithaupt and others called Chasing Theropods Across an Early Jurassic Sand Sea. Hmm. And it was about how they worked with, I think it was mostly middle school students to document a really cool dinosaur track site. Across a sand sea? Yeah. It's the Mail Station Dinosaur Track Site in southeastern Utah. And they work with, or they're from the Bureau of Land Management, BLM. So over the past three years, they've had middle school students in STEM-based paleo camps doing research where they learn about these track sites, how to measure the tracks, and then actually do the measuring. They've documented something like 100 tracks from Ubrantes, which is pretty cool. And some of these tracks showed speeds of 30 miles per hour or 50 kilometers per hour and 34 miles per hour and 55 kilometers per hour. That's pretty fast. They said it's fast, the fastest for any Jurassic theropod wow. so far. That's cool. Yeah. So these students, they did everything. They ID'd the tracks. They measured. They mapped. They did photogrammetry. That's pretty amazing to be able to say you could do that as a middle school student. Yeah, that's cool. So they... Offered some advice if you were to run your own paleo camp, you know, have a good site with lots of footprints. That is important. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, you know the conditions. You don't want people to get dehydrated or overheated, things like that. The next few posters, they all have to do with lesson plans, mostly dinosaur lesson plans, and then how to make it, you know, engaging and interesting and easy for everybody to participate in. So this first one was by Alexander Hastings and others about tracking dinosaur footprints and using 3D digital fossil tracks. And they used photogrammetry to capture 3D surfaces of theropod trackways in a rock quarry in Virginia. These are Triassic tracks. And these trackways, they're really well preserved, but there's a gap in the middle where the tracks are lost. So they thought, oh, let's take advantage of this and make it a teachable moment. And they designed this lesson plan, they said, for third grade classes, but it can be applied to other ages. So students, they'll measure the footprints, they write down their measurements, and then they use some 3D technology to kind of put it together. And you learn the basics of fossil track study, how tracks fossilize, you figure out foots and step lengths, how to tell a left footprint from a right. And then they recreated their footprints. They used paper, pencil, and scissors, and they placed them on a wall or floor and then left the right amount of a gap between each print. And then you can estimate, all right, how many footprints are missing and where should those footprints be if they weren't missing? Oh, that's cool. So it's like there's a gap in the trackway itself and you're trying to figure out like if those had fossilized, where would those feet have landed? Exactly, yeah. And then once you figured that out, there's a fossil track ID guide. You figure out, okay, what kind of dinosaur or other animal likely made this track? In this case, spoiler, it was Dilophosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> or likely Dilophosaurus. But these are Triassic? Yeah. Well, okay, something like Dilophosaurus, I think, was the, yeah. Because you don't know for sure. You almost never know for sure based on a track. I guess that means that they were Eubrontes, because that's usually 
Like it could be Dilophosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so many Ubrantes tracks all over the place. Yeah. And then they give you an equation and you can figure out the height, the hip height of that animal based on the size of their footprint. So a lot of stuff you can learn just from a footprint. Oh, yeah. And then you can illustrate it, draw it to scale. They've made this lesson freely available for anybody who wants to try it out too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And it does sound kind of fun. Like if you go out to a track site, find a gap in the track and then try to recreate it. Yeah. And I'm always amazed at how much you can learn just from these ichnofossils, mm -hmm. the non-bones parts. So then there were a couple of posters about inclusivity and accessibility. One was by Tara Lepore and others. They wanted to know, how do you make courses more accessible, inclusive to those with and without disabilities? So they had their students create a project where they had to make something creative in science communication. Or it's a video, social media, infographic. I guess some people made a children's book. That's pretty cool. And this was all done over seven weeks. They learned different design techniques like closed captioning, colorblind aware palettes, audio descriptions, alt text like that. And yeah, they found that people learning these techniques, they became more aware and going forward, they'll be implementing it themselves. So that one wasn't quite as dinosaur specific, but the next one by Samantha Frigario and others, they had a poster called Dinosaurs Are For Everyone. And it was about creating a virtual guide for deaf and hard of hearing students in their museum. She's from the outreach team at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And they were approached by Deaf Kids Code who wanted this kind of programming. So they designed this tour. They're updating it now based on feedback. They're also working on updating it for kids who are blind or visually impaired. And they, you know, they send out resources before the tour. So you have, you know, what kind of PowerPoint and images and different printouts and things. And then they've got, when you're in the tour itself, you've got the tour guide that you can see, the interpreter, and those images and slides that you were sent ahead of time. And then, of course, there's closed captioning. What was interesting was they're saying some tips were like provide the meaning of scientific names because there's no American Sign Language signs for individual dinosaur species. So, for example, Tyrannosaurus rex is Tyrant Lizard King. Just explain that at some point. Gotcha. And then you might be able to figure out a way to sign Tyrant Lizard King if you wanted to. At least unofficially. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm surprised that T-Rex doesn't have a sign. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that too, but they just fingerspell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's always the fallback. But that can get, you think about some of these long dinosaur oh, yeah. names. <laughs> yeah, and then the ones that are off by like one letter, like Ultrasaurus versus Ultrasauros. Like you'd see the first five to ten letters and you'd be like, oh, I know the one. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and fingerspelling can get tiring. I, my aunt was deaf, and I remember when I first learned to fingerspell um, and was showing off and saying, like, oh, I know how to spell everybody's name in the family. And after a couple of names, she's like, I get it. I get it. Thanks. <laughs> Not only tiring for your own hand, it's tiring for other people to watch, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, another thing that I hadn't realized is, and maybe I should have, uh, when you have the closed captions, those appear at the bottom of the screen. So you don't want writing on your slides at the bottom. Oh, yeah. I've seen that before where like there's somebody's name pops up and they do that little banner at the bottom of the screen. And if you have closed captions on, you can't see who mm -hmm. it is. You only see what they're saying. Yeah. So that it's been a success for them so far. They've done mostly for kids four to six years old, but like all age ranges. Cool. Yeah. And the last two I wanted to point out, there's actually two people who worked on two different posters, and they're doing some cool science communication. It's Alini Gilardi and Tito Aureliano. So the first one was about broadcasting paleontology, YouTube as a science communication and social interaction tool during pandemic times. And they created this YouTube channel to talk about paleontology topics to connect with people during the pandemic and also just, you know, you have something that you can watch and learn from. So they did these bi-weekly live chats with Brazilian paleontologists. They're based in Brazil. And it focused on communication of paleontology. They said it was the largest channel in Portuguese and one of the largest dedicated to the topic of paleontology in the Southern Hemisphere. Cool. Yeah. It's called Bone Collectors. 
But of course, they also have their Portuguese name. So they mostly talked about vertebrate paleontology. They got hundreds of questions, lots of positive feedback. They kept people engaged with this chat interactivity. They said their most popular topics were dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Nice. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this year, they're restructuring it to be even more inclusive. So these same two people, Tito Aureliano and Aline Gilardi, also had this poster called Dino Hazard, a franchise to unite entertainment, science, education, and social impact. And they're saying entertainment can get people into science. You know, not everybody watches documentaries, but then there might be people who are really into science fiction. Mm -hmm. So they made this science fiction, they call it a franchise, to reach more people and also to get people more aware of paleontology in Brazil specifically and engage with the local heritage and promote diversity and inclusion of minorities. It started with a book in 2016 they published called Dino Hazard, Hidden Reality, that became really popular in Brazil, and they've translated it into other languages. I think they said English and Spanish. They've also made toys and collectible miniatures of Brazilian dinosaurs, and they've made it a comic series. Wow. Really expanding, and they decided to release a sequel to the book as a turn-based RPG game. They've got seven main characters. The software, it has a map you explore and you learn about more than 250 extinct taxa. And each time you discover one of them, they'll pop up in your encyclopedia menu. <laughs> oh, gotcha. When you mentioned RPG game, I thought it was like board top yeah. or tabletop, but it's actually a digital thing. It's digital. It's in beta right now. They're testing on Steam. Cool. So far, they're saying they've got a positive response and they're seeing people use these paleontological terms. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. You pick up the language of a game when you're playing it. And if it's a fantasy game, you know, it's all sorts of just like random stuff. But when it's really science focused, you can learn some real stuff about paleontology. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see this one overarching storyline take over in so many ways. Yeah, that's cool. All right. As promised, we have a couple of non-SVP dinosaur news items, starting with In Longchan City, Sichuan, China, there's a 160-million-year-old dinosaur fossil that's been found. Cool. Yeah, it was found at a road construction site when workers cut into a stone slab. Hmm. That seems to happen a lot. Yeah. I mean, the earth works. (laughs) Because if it's under just grass or soil, you're not going to notice it until you dig into something. Mm -hmm. Especially if you start splitting open rocks, there's always a chance there's something fossilized inside. (laughs) A hidden present. Yep. Yeah, this one's well-preserved. It's from a small to medium-sized sauropod that's estimated to be about 33 feet or 10 meters long. That would definitely qualify for smaller than the largest hadrosaurs or largest land mammals. Yeah. So they found a cervical vertebra, caudal vertebra, and hind limbs so far. There's a lot more that they still need to excavate. And they're thinking it might be a new species, so we'll keep an eye out. There's a paper that comes out about it. And then there's the beautiful nightmare partial skull that Garrett uh, talked about briefly at the beginning of this episode. Saving the best for last. (laughs) This was found in North Dakota in the U.S. They think it might be a nanotyrannus. I feel like that's just what you say to troll for headlines. I don't think that was in the headlines. It could be a nanotyrannus. Come on. (laughs) So this quote from the Bismarck Tribune, according to Mike Kellen from Mayville State University, said, quote, she is a beautiful example of her species, and she was a nightmare in her day to a lot of other critters. That's how they got that nickname. Beautiful Mm. nightmare. Yep. I thought it might be like, what's the name of that? Spinosaurid from South America? Irritator. Irritator. (laughs) Yeah, where it was irritating to work with, so they named it Irritator. nightmare to work with, but came out beautifully. Yeah. But apparently, I guess maybe it wasn't that bad to work with. At least that's not the origin of the name. So they found an upper jawbone and lower teeth. This is in the Hell Creek Formation. And the site where the fossil was found, it was a delta floodplain in the late Cretaceous with rivers, swamps, forested areas. There's other fossils that have been found there, and they include two triceratops skulls, an oviraptorid that they think may be the largest one found in North America so far and might also be a new species. Cool. And they found turtles, fish, and plant fossils. And Beautiful Nightmare was found earlier this year after a storm. That also seems to happen a lot. Yep. Another way to expose some of that rock. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what's going to happen with these fossils because they're, 
well, they're found in an area, they're well-preserved, which is good, but they're found on private land. So they're saying ideally the fossils will end up being leased to a nearby museum for display. Leased? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not expecting this to come out as a new species if all we have from it is upper jawbone and lower teeth. That's not... Oh, that one might not be a new species, but it's the oviraptorate that might be a new species. Oh, I meant nanotyrannus, because mm. nanotyrannus would basically be a new species. <laughs> oh, I see. Or we'll just continue the debate. Yeah. I mean, if you have a fragmentary skull like that, it's probably just going to be like, well, it could be a juvenile T-Rex. It's possible they find more bones. Yeah, it's true. Mostly I like the nickname. It is a good nickname. Mm-hmm. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Streptospondylus, which was a request from Morgan via Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was a tetanurin theropod that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Normandy, France. It looks like a typical theropod. It's got the sharp teeth, powerful legs, short arms. It's midsize, estimated to be 19 and a half feet or 6 meters long and weigh 1,100 pounds or 500 kilograms. The type species is Streptospondylus altdorfensis. It's one of the first named theropods, but not many people know about it. It's been called the first binomial name that refers to a theropod. That's a really confusing way to phrase it. Why did they why is it a backwards first binomial name rather than just first named theropod? We didn't know it was a theropod until 2001, really. Oh, gotcha. So that's why it gets a confusing thing. And yeah, it's it's very confusing because it's you know one of the first dinosaur fossils found. It's one of the first dinosaurs described, but just didn't know it was a dinosaur until much later. Yeah. And I think if you're going to take that caveat of first binomial name that refers to a theropod, the unequivocal winner in that one is Scrotum Humanum. Yeah. Which is technically a binomial name, and it refers to a dinosaur, even though it's a mess of a genus, but it, it beat it out by at least 100 years. So what happened, I'll, I'll get into the story now, is most of the fossils were part of Abbe Bachelet's private collection in 1770. They ended up with George Cuvier in 1800. So that's how far back this goes. Yeah, 250 years, <laughs> mm -hmm. 1770. They were mostly found in Honfleur, France, and they included cranial and postcranial fossils from two teleosaurs, marine crocodilomorphs, and some theropod fossils. Guersant sent the fossils to the museum in Rouen, and that led to George Cuvier having them. So in 1812, Cuvier added more fossils to this collection, the Bachelet collection. These fossils were found in Le Havre and described in 1776 by Abbe Dikmer. Unfortunately, it's unclear where exactly the Bachelet collection fossils were found. It's only known that they were found near Honfleur. So sometimes I'll refer to these fossils as the Bachelet fossils, sometimes the Honfleur fossils. I assume this is all in France? Yes. The full collection, the Bachelet collection, has never been published which also makes things a little trickier. Some of these fossils have been associated with Megalosaurus, part of a pubis, tibia, astragalus, and calcaneum. So these fossils were examined, the four I just named, at the Natural History Museum in Paris, 
And those fossils were probably found at the Vachnoir Cliffs. So they're dated Upper Calovian, Lower Oxfordian, Jurassic times, basically. On 1824, Cuvier referred some of the Hanfleur fossils to two species of crocodilians based on the length of the snout. One was long, one was short. <laughs> and he also talked about the differences in the two vertebral systems that were found in association with the skulls. But he didn't name them. The next year, 1825, Jeffrey Saint-Hilaire said that based on the cranial fossils, both species were the crocodiliform Stenaeosaurus. And he named one Stenaeosaurus rostromajor, includes the skull, that's the long one, and Stenaeosaurus rostrominor, which includes a complete mandible. <laughs> rostromajor and rostrominor? Yeah. I'm assuming the smaller one is rostrominor? Yeah. These names, though, were only applied to the cranial fossils and not the postcranial fossils, those vertebrae that Cuvier had described. There's a lot of fossils getting moved around to different species in this story. Hmm. In 1832, Christian Eric Hermann von Mayer renamed the short-snouted Stenaeosaurus rostrominor as Metriorhynchus jeffroii. That's a marine crocodile form, and named the long-snouted Stenaeosaurus rostromajor, a newly named species that he called Streptospondylus altdorfensis. Interesting. So that's where Streptospondylus creeps in in 1832. Yeah. That's weird. You'd think that Stenaeosaurus would have some sort of naming priority. Well, we'll get into that, too. <laughs> Enter Richard Owen, but... First, von Mayer included all the fossils that Cuvier had described, so those vertebrae ones and the skull, and said that those both belonged to Streptospondylus altdorfensis. He did not, however, designate a type specimen. Oh, boy. <laughs> now, it turns out that this would make Streptospondylus a mix of theropod vertebrae and the type species of Stenaeosaurus rostromajor, and it turned out that Stenaeosaurus rostromajor was a composite of parts from two different teleosaur species. Interesting. So we've got a mess here. So I, I guess if Stenaeosaurus is a chimera, then Streptospondylus gets that name to stick around, maybe? Did I guess right? Um, Streptospondylus kind of goes on its own journey. <laughs> 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 So these two different teleosaur species, the parts of the skull, they eventually became Stenaeosaurus edwardsi in 1870. And that name was originally from 1866, but this particular fossil got referred in 1870. And then the other part of the fossil was referred to Metriorhynchus supercilosum in 1973. And that one had originally been named in 1853. But again, this particular fossil got referred in 1973. Gotcha. Uh, just jumping ahead just very briefly, and then we'll jump back. In 2001, Ronan Allain did a whole redescription of Streptospondylus and said that this means that Streptospondylus is basically only known from postcranial fossils. And he said Streptospondylus altdorfensis is valid. So that's kind of the end point is that Streptospondylus altdorfensis is the type species, and it's valid. But we're not quite there yet. We're still in the 1800s. <laughs> so in 1842, Richard Owen said that Streptospondylus altdorfensis should be Streptospondylus rostromajor because you're keeping that original species name. Mm -hmm. But then he also created Streptospondylus cuvieri in 1842, and he made the type species this part of a dorsal vertebra that was found in Chipping Norton in Oxfordshire, England. And then he also referred to tooth and neural spine. Part of one vertebra yep. is naming a species. And a tooth and a neural spine. <laughs> but those are only referred. <laughs> well, not only that, these fossils have since been lost. And according to Alain, in 2001, Owen's description of it, quote, holds no scientific value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, I would presume so if it's a partial single vertebra. Yep. So streptospondylus Cuvieri, as of today, is considered to be a nomum dubium. But Owen, Richard Owen, did not think that. 
1861, Owen said that the skulls and vertebrae from Hanfleur, the original fossils, were in a suborder for crocodiles. He did still consider streptospondylus to be valid, but he started referring all the material to streptospondylus cuvieri and not streptospondylus rostromager. And it's unclear why. He never explained, even though he said it, <laughs> we should be using rostromager. Interesting. Yeah, because he only has this partial vertebra, and he's like, all of them are more like this partial vertebra I found than they are like, you know, a much more complete series from the original. Yeah. And I think because of him, there's other scientists between 1870 to 1923 that also use the name Streptospondylus cuvieri. There are also some mix-ups, like Edward Cope named Lalaps Gallicus in 1867, and Frederick von Huene wrote about Megalosaurus cuvieri in 1909, and both of those are considered to be junior synonyms of Streptospondylus. We get a little more confusion. In 1964, Alec Walker said that Streptospondylus cuvieri material wasn't from Hanfleur and synonymized Streptospondylus altdorfensis with Stenaeosaurus rostromager. Oh, Stenaeosaurus making a comeback in the 1960s. Yep. Walker also named the new species Eustreptospondylus oxoniensis, and that genus name means true Streptospondylus, and that's a megalosaur from the late Jurassic. So I guess you can tell where his feelings were on this. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and Eustreptospondylus oxoniensis was found in 1870 in Oxford, England. It's a pretty complete skeleton. Oh, cool. But it was referred to Megalosaurus Bucklandi in 1890. Like a lot of things work. A popular wastebasket. Yep. Then in 1905 and 1906, Franz Knopsche reassigned that skeleton to Streptospondylus cuvieri. Getting that back. And that was odd because the skeleton is nearly complete, but he assigned it to a species with very incomplete remains. Mm -hmm. Walker in 1964 also referred the material that Cuvier himself had described as a new species of Eustreptospondylus, Eustreptospondylus divsensis. That's confusing. Yes. He named something. Something that was thought to be a crocodiliform now is this new species of the true Streptospondylus. <laughs> yeah. So when he described it as Steneosaurus, and then I was like, no, it's Eustreptospondylus. And he said that the type species of this new species of Eustreptospondylus was a partial brain case that Jean Pivoteau had described in 1923 that he had assigned in 1923 to Streptospondylus cuvieri. Those were found in Normandy, France. So again, with these fossils keep changing names. Walker also included the fossils that Owen had said were Streptospondylus cuvieri, as now they're Eustreptospondylus divsensis. So many species names, too. Mm -hmm. Like, not only the genus name changing, but the species name keeps getting all mixed up. So we're not quite done. <laughs> In 1977, Philippe Taquette and Samuel Wells said that the postcranial fossils that Pivoteau had described as well as a nearly complete skeleton of Eustreptospondylus that's at the Oxford University Museum, were two different genera. And they named a new one Pivotosaurus, an allosauroid. They named that in 1977. And then the other one they said was still Eustreptospondylus. Now, they only considered that partial brain case to be Pivotosaurus. And that genus name means Jean Pivotos lizard. And they didn't consider the postcranial fossils to be part of that. So now we jump ahead to 2001. Elaine redescribed Streptospondylus and kind of went through all of the history and talked about the different fossils and how they're related. And he said that there's nothing to indicate that the vertebrae from Hanfleur, those original Streptospondylus fossils, were the same taxon as Pivotosaurus. So definitely two different dinosaurs. And he said that Walker's 1964 conclusions with the U streptospondylus and kind of lumping all these referred material only made sense if streptospondylus altdorfensis is a junior synonym of Stenaeosaurus rostromager. So, Alain named electotype for streptospondylus that included vertebrae, part of the left pubis, part of the right fibula, the right astragalus, and the right calcaneum, which 
might sound familiar. Those are those parts I mentioned earlier that had been associated with megalosaurs. He also referred part of a left femur that had been described in 1890. It's not part of the original Bachelet collection. It's actually unknown where this femur was found, but it's got enough similarities that he referred it. So those are the only fossils now known to be streptospondylus. So no skull. No skull. Even though it started with two skulls, although it wasn't called streptospondylus back then. Yep. (laughs) So he found, like I mentioned earlier, streptospondylus altorfensis is valid and that all material should be assigned to that species, no other species. He also said that streptospondylus and eustreptospondylus were closely related. They're part of megalosauroidea. So the type species, again, and the only valid species is Streptospondylus altdorfensis. And the genus name, Streptospondylus, means reversed vertebra. And it refers to the vertebrae being different from typical crocodile elements. The species name, altdorfensis, refers to teleosaur, those marine crocodilomorphs, cranial fossils having been found in Altdorf, which von Mayer had thought were the same taxon as the fossils found near Hanflor. And von Mayer's the one who made that name, so makes sense. Now, there have been other names or other species of Streptospondylus. Richard Owen named most of them. <laughs> <laughs> he also named Streptospondylus major in 1842, Streptospondylus recentor, and Streptospondylus mayori in 1851, and Streptospondylus grandis in 1854. And all of those fossils are now thought to be iguanodont. Hmm. Very different. Yeah. <laughs> in 2010, Gregory Paul informally renamed Magnosaurus as Streptospondylus nethercomensis, but most people still consider Magnosaurus to be a valid genus. And Magnosaurus and Streptospondylus have been found to be sister taxa. Interesting. So that is the long convoluted history of Streptospondylus, which could have been the oldest dinosaur named, but it just wasn't thought to be a dinosaur early enough. And our fun fact of the day, I pulled out of the macroecology and macroevolution sessions. I just grabbed the one that I thought had the most pithy fun fact. It was by Christoph Hendricks and others, and it's that there are over 400 taxa of theropods. Wow. And this must be for at least extinct theropods, if not non-avian theropods, because if you include avian theropods, then there's over 10,000. But they're also, in addition to diversity in just sheer number of taxa, they're very diverse in terms of diet, size, and behavior, because you've got aquatic, terrestrial, arboreal, herbivorous, carnivorous, insectivorous, all of the above, huge, small, all the combinations. So there's a lot to go through with all of that. And this paper by Hendricks was looking at their eco space, which is kind of fun because it's like, depending on where they are, they might be really small, like the J-hole biota, or it might be very large somewhere else, like you find in the Hell Creek. Although there is a lot of taphonomic bias there, so it's hard to make specific claims. But the funny thing is, at the end of his talk, he mentioned Alan Grant's quote about quote-unquote hyperspace, (laughs) which basically was Michael Crichton's version of ecospace. It had a lot of the same description about like a hyperspace is the area an animal lives in and how it interacts with it and stuff like that. So I thought that was pretty fun. That is. That's a lot more theropods than I realized, too. Yeah. They beat out sauropods. Hmm. They're only in the 200s versus 400. For now. For now. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of Inodino. Thank you for listening. And if you want to join our growing community, head over to patreon.com slash Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.